What's happening, weirdos? Welcome back. We took a week off uh, for the holiday. I hope you had a safe one and a happy one, as happy and safe as imaginable. <laughs> no, I hope you're doing well. This is a, what is this, a voicemail? What am I, leaving you a voicemail? <laughs> no, I hope you're doing well. Anyway, um, this is Brian Koppelman. Um, he is incredible. This was an effortless, wonderful conversation. He's a podcaster himself. He has a wonderful podcast, uh, which I should look up the name of. I will. Brian Koppelman podcast. Look, I'm just doing this with you. It's called The Moment with Brian Koppelman. There we are. See, this is one of those real, real, not very slick podcasts. It's part of our charm. You just hear me typing and shit. Brian is great. Anyway, I've been looking forward to talking to him for a long time. We finally made it happen here. Um, He wrote Rounders, which was a movie that really uh, impacted my life. He's uh, the creator of Billions. He's worked on a lot of things. Solitary Man. Um, And it's great. We just loved it so much. If you love it one-tenth as much as I loved it, you will shit your pants. This uh, episode is brought to us by our friends at Onnit, the makers of It's Right Here. That's my Alpha Brain right there. I've been taking Alpha Brain, uh, two or three Alpha Brain, once or sometimes twice a day uh, for four, five, maybe six years now. It is a nootropic. It's earth-grown ingredients. It's not a stimulant. It helps support memory and focus. Everything that I do uh, that involves my brain, this podcast, writing a script, um, doing stand-up, even if I just want to go out to dinner and be alert and attentive, or if I'm just hanging out at home and I want the full faculty of my brain available to me without any like jitters or stimulation like you get from coffee, it's not like that. It's like nutrition. It's earth-grown nutrition that helps your brain function at its highest potential. I swear by it. Uh, for, like I said, almost six years now, I've never left the house without some in my car, some in my pocket. There's some in my carry-on. I always have it with me. I can feel the difference uh, 100%. The easiest way to see what I'm talking about is to try it. And good news, if you've uh, enjoyed this podcast and you want to show your support, you can try it and show your support. All you got to do is go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird, and you'll get 10% off. And you can see what all the shake is about. That's an expression. What all the shake is about. It is so good. Man, I, I love it. It changed my life. I wish I, I had it in school. Um, also, it's brought, speaking of using your brain, this episode is brought to us by our friends at Babbel. I've always wanted to learn another language, or in my case, brush up on a language that I studied in high school. But the last time I decided to give it a try, I spent hours learning random vocabulary words I knew I'd never use. Babbel is different. It teaches you phrases you'll actually use in real life, even slang. It's made uh, with language learning methods that are designed to get you speaking your new language within weeks with daily 10 to 15 minute, they're real quick, 10 to 15 minute lessons. Babbel's interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology helps to improve your pronunciation and accent, so it's listening back to you, so you feel confident when you speak. The best thing to me is the lessons are created by real language experts. It's not machine learning algorithms or AI technology. It's made by actual human language experts that help you learn practical, real-world conversations. They've sold over 10 million subscriptions, and you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. In my case, I went back to Spanish. 
I find that very useful uh, in my daily life, to be honest. I love it. But I also did it because learning languages is one of the ways to keep your brain elastic, keep it creative, keep it expanding, not contracting, not atrophying. Language is one of uh, the best ways to light up your brain and keep it growing. And right now, Babbel is offering our listeners three months free with a purchase of a three-month subscription. That's six months for the price of three with promo code PETE. Go to B-A-B-B-E-L dot com and use promo code PETE for your three-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com to use promo code PETE. Babbel, language for life. These are always honest, guys. They're good things that I believe in, that I use, and if you are interested in them at all, it really does mean a lot to me. It always helps us out if you guys try a Pete's Pick. Uh, We don't have a Patreon. We don't have a a donate button. Uh, If you like the show, it's always going to be free. No paywall. Just get a Pete's Pick, something that I like, and you'll be supporting. Uh, You made it weird. All right. Enjoy my chat with the incredible Brian Koppelman. Um, and unrelated, unrelated, I've been watching Patriot on Amazon. Why didn't anyone tell me about Patriot on Amazon? It's fucking incredible. So good. I really, really, really want an AI, like a, like a 3D holographic person that greets me when I come in and says, Hello, based on your taste, I've scoured every network. Not just like just this network. I want all of the networks and I want the AI to say, there's this great show on Amazon. I have, I have Amazon, but it's hard to know which ones are my taste. I wish someone could look at my Netflix and say, hey, you watch Mad Men, you'll probably like Patriot. They feel similar to me. Or you like Wes Anderson movies, you'll probably like Patriot. Anyway, if there is something like that, tweet at me. Um, and if there isn't something like that, as I think, please, someone listening, invent that. Give it like an Australian accent and maybe like a cummerbund which I don't know what it is. I don't know what that is. I think the Colonel Sanders wore one. Okay. All right. Brian Koppelman. Peace. You're a famous person. I'm not a famous person, but I'm, uh, you know, very outspoken in my opposition to fascistic regimes. And so uh, at times I get a lot of ire uh, that comes in my direction from, you know, certain parts of the world. And so I uh, just try to not be exactly, you know, I just don't want, <laughs> I don't mind someone. I love when people say nice things to me, if they recognize me or if they love the work, but it's the other sorts of stuff that I try not to do have to deal with. Yeah. That's very interesting. I, when Charlie day did this podcast, he was like, you're letting in like a, a, a Pulitzer prize winner but you're also letting in just somebody that if you met them, you would know, like this person probably doesn't know enough about my work or my art to, to really count as much as the Pulitzer guy. But when you're reading a feed or whatever, you're just giving everybody the same level of credence. And you're like, this guy says I'm a piece of shit. So you've talked a lot. I love your vines. Uh, I know that's a long time ago, forgive me, but they're, it's still evergreen and wonderful advice. And you talk a lot about, self-confidence and trying to turn off these voices that are already in our heads. And I think a modern phenomena is that everybody has like a feed of voices, you know, right? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm really able to turn off. You, I think you got to separate it out, Pete. Um, the, the voices I'm talking about there 
are the incredible, the doubts that all of us who do any endeavor to do any sort of work from the best part of ourselves. The part that makes it scary is you're tapping into this thing, this feeling, this idea, this tone that you want to somehow express, but you know, as you try to bring that stuff out into the world, you may not be as good as you hope you are. You may let yourself down. I'm, it's much less about the external criticism. Once the work's out there, that, that's what it is. What I'm, I'm, you know, this stuff that, and I've been, I've been targeted by Breitbart a few times where they've put me on their front thing and sent people to me. So I don't care about those words. I care about the, uh, the possibility of people in the, in, in the world going beyond words in such a contentious time. Oh, wow. I, look, I, you know, the creative part of this, it was so, it was so hard one for me to do creative work. I felt so defeated for so long and I felt like such a failure, not because I didn't have commercial like success. I felt like such a failure because I had feelings inside me that I couldn't get out onto the page or I couldn't get out into the world. And so I, I had to train myself to, to turn down the, the voices that were killing the part of myself that wanted to do creative work. And that, that took a lot of effort. And that's why anytime I can share parts of that, I'm happy to be, because I feel like, and I've said this in the vines, but I'll say it now, because as you mentioned, that was a long time ago. When you let that kind of creative impulse die, when you, it's like any other kind of death and death has toxicity. And I was really got to the point where I realized that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people that I love. And when, when that became clear that I wasn't just hurting myself, but that I would turn into the kind of person who would come home and be bitter, uh, again, not because I didn't have success, because I wasn't doing what I felt like I was put here to do because I was scared and I let the fear win. And so th- that's the stuff. And, and so Twitter, I, I, people, you know, I'm sure today I could go online and there'll be people saying shitty things about my work or me. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't bother me. But my own sense of my failings or, and, and then in the real world, obviously all of us have to deal with gatekeepers and people who judge the work professionally. And then as you've had to, we have to train ourselves to figure out how to process that feedback and turn it into something useful or discard it. Um, And so that's another thing that I've tried to give a decent amount of thought to in in terms of how how to do that. But I separate all that out from the political stuff. Like that's totally different. And my greatest hope is that once... January 20th rolls around. I will not make a, a, a socially engaged political tweet for, uh, I hope, four years, you know. Mm, is that what it, it got you, the heat, the ire, was political tweets and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember when we were scheduling this, I was I was foolish and I first scheduled this for election day. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and brilliantly, I wasn't thinking. I sort of missed that part of myself. There was a time... Ryan, when I was young and I met people and I didn't care at all what their politics were. And I, I'm really, I find myself craving that, that innocence. I went through all of my college, believe it or not, 
I, I, I remember my dear friend Heath, he was a Republican, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like, because I everybody I knew was a Democrat. So I was like, tell me about Republicanism. And and when I watch the West Wing, I'm watching the West Wing now, and they'll have like a cool Republican. And I'm like, even that was like a simpler time where it didn't have as much um it didn't have Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to get lost in this because the election happened and and uh I think this despot is going to has been deposed, but I sep- I'm, I'm happy to have conservative friends who think and, and are engaged in figuring out all sorts of things about the country and, and the world. For me, this was different. This last four years was about the very essence of our democracy. And I, I was early on it. I, I saw this end result, this thing that's happening now with Trump trying to fight the election results. I saw it and I started talking about it five when he started, when he announced he was running, like, so that to me is different. And that's why I think there's this, you know, he capitalized on a polarization, but I think that's also part of why there is this polarization, but we do not have to talk about this stuff at all. And, and politics at all, Be, because I think everyone's sick of it. I'm sick of it. And, and I, I have no, uh, once we safeguard democracy, let, let's then figure out, um, a way to get, get back to being able to all talk and vi- really like vigorously disagree, but then hug afterwards, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. I've been telling people, so this sort of goes back to the, the broader thing I want to talk about you with, uh, to you with is the importance of movies. So I'm going to say two things to you and I'm going to let, first of all, I always forget. Welcome. I'm such a fan. I'm so happy to meet you, even if it is over zoom. Um, so thank you for taking the time. I always forget. And if someone interviews me and they don't say that, I'm like, fuck this asshole. Oh, very like, sweet. You didn't have to say it. I, but it's I'm on your show. I, I figure you invited me on your show because you like the work. So I like that. Well, that's you're dealing in subtext now. And I like that. That's a good writer. You understood the subtext of the invite was the I'm a fan. So you didn't need it. But uh, also in, uh, you know, the front of the teeth show business. And I want to brush the front and make you shiny and feel welcome. Um, two things I'm going to say about movies uh, to talk about how we use movies to reconcile feelings. Yes. And so it's not just entertainment. It can be. I think you and I both know the feeling of our penises going inside of our bodies because you're watching something that's a movie based on movies. It's just a movie because it sounded like a movie. You're very uh, passionate about writing what fascinates you, what you need to write. I really, I agree with you that that's what we have a deficit of. Is like, what got you out of bed? Not the can't miss Dwayne The Rock Johnson action movie that you thought could make you a million dollars. Like, snooze. So I'm going to tell you, not, not Dwayne The Rock Johnson can't miss action movies are great. I'm just saying, I'm sure the people that wrote them had a passion. Or I mean, I in fairness, I have credit on one of them. So I did there write you go. one of them. So, Which one? Yes. Uh, I did. Dave and I did four week rewrite on Walking Tall, and I'll tell you, it it represented. It was toward the end of being willing to do that kind of work. But but The Rock is the different thing, you know. The Rock is an incredibly special. <clears throat> that guy is an incredibly special uh, performer and oh, yeah. entertainer. But I agree with you. I agree with your thesis completely. But I, I have to say, I mean, I'm my, I do have a uh, walking tall poster because my name's on the fucking thing. <laughs> I, dude, I have a walking tall poster just because I have body goals. We're the same height, he and I, um, which is such a shame. Like, that's funny. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen. You're like, I'm as tall as he is. I could. That's do that. hilarious. I think well, your point was going to be that that just movies matter. 
we're doing work that matters to you. Well, and, I well, well, let me let me load this into you because I, I re- then I'm going to be quiet. I promise. I've been I watched Frost Nixon and that helped me gain a perspective of of another time in American history. It just fascinated and touched me that Sam Rockwell's character is like he degraded democracy. He divided us, and I was like, what? Even watching West Wing when they're talking about like the snobby Democrats and the coastal elites. And I'm like, that's not new. And you just don't like, uh, Sorkin wrote this great thing about like, you just don't like people with guns. It's not about public safety. It's not about personal freedom. You just don't like the South. And I was like, holy shit, like this is brilliant. I love good conflict like that. So there's Frost Nixon. And then what is the Viggo Mortensen? I can't believe I'm forgetting. History of Violence? No, great movie. Great movie based on a graphic novel. A great movie. Um, the one that, uh, won, uh, the road trip, he, he's with the jazz. Oh, the road, Cormac McCarthy's the road. Not the, not another great, uh, book. I didn't love the movie as much, but the, the, the road trip, he's with the jazz. He's not a jazz musician. He's a classic. Oh yeah. Yes. The one with, um, uh, Mahershala. Yeah. Uh, is the star of it. The green, uh, the green book. The green book. Okay. I'm going to pitch. Right? Is that what it's called? Wait, it's, is that what it's called? It's called green book. Yes. Yes. I'm going to pitch you a movie as a joke. This isn't real. But is there any part of you? So I'm going to, I'm loading you with Frost Nixon and how that movie actually made me feel alive and okay in the same way, not to butter your bread, the way that Rounders made me feel alive and okay because my, um, my ex-wife, her attitude wasn't exactly like her attitude towards Matt's gambling. But I was a young man reconciling with like, I want to have guys, I want to have friends like Kanish. I want to grind it out in weird underground comedy clubs. So that movie salved me and helped me and shaped me as a young man, as I know it did a lot of people. But then the Green Book, this is the movie pitch that I'm I'm pitching to you as a joke. I need a movie. I need a movie. I think we all need a movie where there is a liberal and and a, a real... Uh, Trump kind of conservative where they're in a bottle where they're stuck and they have to like, this is not a real movie. I don't even necessarily want to see it. I'm just saying like, I want art to somehow address the subtlety that's missing in those two energies and, and, and how they could possibly find one another if they're in a situation where they don't have to represent their politics all the time, where they actually have to draw upon each other's strengths. Well, I'm going to say something absurd and, uh, on its face, which is I love it. That's what's useful about a movie like about the movie Independence Day, because what it shows you is when something greater than all of our bullshit happens, we have no choice but to unify. Right. And so, yes, if if what you wanted was those people to argue out the issues of the day, that would never happen. However, two people driving down the street and they see a car trapped and on fire and a kid in it. And one's a Trump supporter, regular, you're not a crazy, you know, um, proud boy, white supremacist lunatic, but somebody who just believes in certain things that are totally antithetical to my belief system, but they believe it about America and me. Well, we're both getting out of the car to try to help and we're going to work together to try to help because there's something that matters more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, so that, that, that idea, right. That these people could work on this problem together. Um, and then afterwards go back to being perhaps divided, but with a different understanding about one another, that's possible. If the aliens really came down and attacked, we would forget a lot of the differences that happened. Um, right. Yes. I understand that. I, but I, w- I would also suggest to you that if you, you know, as I know you have, when you read like any behavioral economics, behavioral scientists, 
Daniel Kahneman or like Michael Lewis's book about Daniel Kahneman and Tversky, Amos Tversky, what, 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 you, what you learn is that rational argument, rationally talking this stuff through doesn't work. The only thing that works is uh, uh, some sort of emotional appeals that change people emotionally. Rational responses to a certain kind of group behavior, don't, they don't do anything because we react uh, uh, emotionally. And so it's difficult. And, and, and I agree. Uh, I, look, I love, nobody likes West Wing more than I do. And, <laughs> and I've watched I'm new to it, dude. I, I'm season two. I'm new. I'm loving it. I love it. I've, and I've been watching, um, I watched Frost Nixon this year. Yeah. But I also would point you to a movie called Conspiracy. That's, um, uh, a film starring Stanley Tucci and uh, Kenneth Branagh and uh, directed by Frank Pearson. And it came out in 2001 and it's about the Wannsee conference, which was the gathering in Germany where the final solution was put into place, the murder of 6 million Jews. And uh, they just gather around a table and it's all based on transcripts. One person got, everyone burned their notes of the meeting, but one person got the notes out and years later they were found and, People Whoa. made a documentary about it, but this is a dramatic movie, a narrative. And when you watch it, uh, Pete, and, and you, you see uh, uh, the way the decisions are made, it's going to chill you to the bone because you're going to recognize uh, how the cowardice of man is sometimes used against man. And, and, uh, and it'll explain a lot about what's been going on. Um, I get pretty deep into all this stuff. I, I, I try to study, as you do, to do what you do. I try to understand the things that motivate people to make decisions that might be in their best interest or might not be in their best interest as part of my work and as part of the work of just being a human in the world right now. And um, look, Frost Nixon, that, that, you know, you brought us right up to the moment, right? You, you brought us right up to is the moment that Sam Rockwell says, I'm, I'm never going to shake his hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The president walks into the room and sticks out his hand and Rockwell shakes it. And, and for me, like everything that character says is right about who Nixon was. And then he shakes his hand anyway. And it, yeah. and it, it reminds me of that moment in um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo when, uh, you know, Daniel Craig comes back into the house, even though he knows Stellan Skarsgård is the killer. And Stellan Skarsgård says to him, you didn't want to be impolite. You knew I was going to do this. But we're so scared of um, being impolite or of, of offending in a certain way or of standing up to a certain kind of power mm. that we put ourselves in a position where power is going to slit our necks. And so um, I, I, you know, ultimately in Frost Nixon, good prevails. Uh, and, and I think we're a few weeks away from that happening again. Yeah. I hope you're right. And again, not I, that you invited me on here to talk about politics in this way. I, this is your time, man. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. Just, I'm fascinated. I, 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 Trust I'll frost you and I'll keep us in the good zone. But I think this is, we're talking about humanity because this will be out in a couple of months. So things will be different. You know, we're a little backlogged right now. So I think you come out in December, this episode. So like we can't be a topical show, but here, here's an interesting question. I'm saying if I'm Sam Rockwell and I'm trying to put together the diehard, uh, the hard hitting interview with Trump, we're, we're going to get that. We're going to get him to admit these things or whatever. And he puts his hand out. I know I, this isn't, I know I'm shaking. I, I just know that's what I do. I remember Vince Vaughn got in uh, some shit on Twitter because he shook the president's hand or whatever. And I was like, 
it, it reminds me, you mentioned the, the Holocaust, the, the Jews that were witness to all the Germans and the Nazis hiling Hitler. And the quote being, it took everything inside of me to not put my arm up. I know those are two very different things, but I'm saying like, yes, I'm what I'm fascinated in what you're saying is there's what Young says is symbols, emotion, moments. You set a car on fire. I said a baby in a house with a MAGA hat. I'm scooping up the baby and they're scooping up me with my NPR hat or whatever the fuck. There's something that transcends all of these differences. We have to remind, you'd have to psych yourself up to not shake somebody's hand like that. And, and you'd have to, you'd almost have to like be on camera too. You'd have to know that there was an audience and that it was going to like matter. I feel like that would amplify. Um, I mean, I'm certain that I wouldn't shake that guy's hand now, but I did shake his hand in 2011, I think. And it was before he started with the birther stuff. And, but I knew he was um, a bad person and I shook his hand. And even that night, I felt really bad about it. And I've tweeted about this, that I did do it once. It was at my friend's, lifelong friend's daughter's bat mitzvah. And Donald Trump was at the bat mitzvah. And was I going to ruin the entire night for everybody? by publicly refusing to shake his hand. He wasn't a candidate for office. He was just a terrible person. And um, <laughs> now we're in drama. We're writing a good scene. I'm not saying right. we'll ever use it. This is a great scene. Those thoughts were in my head. I remember where I was standing, you know, and, and, um, and I, sh- I shook his hand. Now I will say a few years later, that same friend's youngest daughter was being bat mitzvah. And Michael Cohn, was going to be at that bat mitzvah. This guy, this friend of mine is in those circles and, and he is a lifelong friend. I mean, we've known each other since we were 11 years old. Oh, wow. And, um, but I said, listen, man, I can't, I won't come. And he said, why? And I said, because I will ruin the, so this is like, I said, because I'll ruin the event. If, if this is before Michael Cohn turned, you know, and I said, uh, I, I will, there's, I can't be in the same room as that guy that Michael Cohn's related to my friend. I said, I can't be in the same room as that guy. If I'm in the same room as him, I have a duty as a, in my opinion, I have a duty as a citizen to say a bunch of stuff because they're in power. <laughs> you know, there was, Trump wasn't in power because they're in power. If I say a bunch of stuff, it's going to take away from your daughter's bat mitzvah. So I can't do it. And, look, look at us. We have intention and obstacle. Right. <laughs> No, we want a good bat mitzvah, but there's these political things, and you're like, I'm not going to be in this movie. Come and, and, and remember, he, he said to me, "How can you let?" I mean, I remember his text was like, "I can't even tell my wife that this is why you're not." I mean, how can you let politics get in the way of you and I've known each other? I'm 54, so this was maybe three years ago. So, you know, 40 year friendship, and he's like, "How can you?" And I said, "Well, because I have a moral obligation in my mind now." I'm no fucking hero. I'm a, I, honestly, everyone's, I've done plenty of hard, like all of us have done, said the wrong thing, not stood up for our, where, what we believed in. Everybody has. But in that moment, I was like, well, I, this feels like that kind of thing that your grandkids ask you, well, would you have socialized with these people? And I had to say, 
no, I wouldn't socialize with these people. Right. But you narrative, you, that, see, that's the camera that I'm pitching is like you narrativized it to saying, what will I say to my grandchildren? I did. So we need, that's what I mean by psych ourselves up. But just for fun, let's take Trump out of it. Frost Nixon, you're, we're writing Sam Rockwell. This is just for fun. Please never feel like I'm testing you. I just want to play with you. Sam Rockwell doesn't want to shake his hand. We need to give him a line. He needs to say, I, you know, bad pitch. All due respect, Mr. President, because that's like a, I acknowledge reality. All due respect, Mr. President, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, what do you say? <laughs> I think you just say, I can't shake your hand. <laughs> that's the one to I mean, be. I think you just say, can't shake your hand. Uh, also, that was done really well by Aaron Sorkin um, in, uh, in A Few Good Men. When one of the two convicted, uh, not convicted, charged um, guys, uh, instead of saluting Tom Cruise, very dramatically puts his hands in his pocket. Right. And we just saw that again with Sorkin with um, standing for the judge yes. in the Chicago, yes. which is, I think we agree, phenomenal. Just Great. Phenomenal- that moment is amazing. And Frank Langella, what a, per- so hard, as you, you're, as an actor, you, what Frank Langella does in that movie is so hard, I think. Like the and other guys all playing. Who that is? Judge, the judge. He kills it. And, and what he's a Nixon. guy. He's, yeah. he's Nixon and yes. Cross Nixon. God, that's one of those guys that disappears. I, I, I don't go, there's Nixon. I go, or right. there's the guy from the box. I go, there's the judge. But, but that, he was so good in the movie. And, 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 um, and, you know, the not standing didn't affect him. Whereas that moment in, 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 um, a few good men really affects Tom Cruise's character. And because, and it's, I think it's an analog to this, this Nixon moment. I think you stick your hand in your pocket and now he couldn't, the power, what that's talking about is we all grow up with this idea that there are things that must, I mean, look, you went through this in your own battles with the idea of religion and what marriage meant. And, there are these symbols and ideas and things to which we're told from an early age we owe fealty. Yes. If we take it out of the if we take it out of the political realm, which I want to. Uh, there are because what we're really what you're really talking about is like what matters to you and how much of what matters to you is inherited, how much of what matters to you is received as opposed to determined. And we one of the battles in life is to become comfortable enough in our own skin that we create for ourselves those things that matter as opposed to those things that we are told are supposed to matter. I lost you. I just muted myself because my neighbor is doing some sawing. Um, They're shooting the prequel to saw. Um, I just couldn't relate more. I'm not trying to bring, I'm going to keep it in Nixon, the fictional Nixon me. If I shook Nixon, Nixon's hand, this is why you're so good at character and it's why you're so good at what you do and emotion, right? So this is not a political issue. Why, if I'm Sam Rockwell, would I shake Nixon's hand? Because my father that's right. told me to. Because my father said that's the office and that's respect to the country. And like, you've just stumbled into something that I'm so passionate about is like, who are we and where did it come from? And how much of it is like, well, I have this folder of intel, of, and this goes to religion perfectly. I was told that I believed Jewish people were going to hell. Right. Dude, perfect, perfect sledgehammer. Six million Jews went to hell after they were in hell. 
That's the God we're dealing with. By the way, same God. And here's a fun fact for you, not that you need it, but if you ever want a religious fun fact, Jesus in the New Testament, when he's talking to Jews, only tells them to be good Jews. He only tells them to be good Jews. He doesn't say, fuck that shit, that's garbage, come with me. He does take a lot of liberties with the Old Testament, with his scriptures, which is beautiful. That's what we know as Midrash. He knows when to drop it. He knows when it's archaic. He ignores, he deletes, and he favors mercy, and he favors justice, and he doesn't care about rescuing a goat on the Sabbath. But like, that is just a good feather to keep in your cap. If you ever have a good heated West Wing evangelical debate, Jesus only told Jews to be good Jews. I have many evangelical friends and I have these conversations. That's the thing that I, that's why I, one of the things that I, one of the things I most hate about this era, about what I think Trump did is that legit, I have real friends who are evangelical Christians, actively evangelical Christians. And I can have the best dinners with like the best nights talking to them. And our views couldn't be more divergent. That's it. And it's the, and I mean, these are, uh, uh, I've given book quotes on the back of books of people, friends of mine who are evangelical Christians. Um, but, and, and that's the way this is all supposed to be. What can I learn for legit? legitimately, what can I learn from interacting with you that's going to challenge some fundamental belief of mine, make me look at something differently? Uh, What can I read that you've read? How can I share what I know with you? And how can we come to a new understanding? Like, the hell are we doing in this life of interacting with people about it? And this era has made all that much more charged and and much more uh, difficult. And um, I, I feel really bad about that. Uh, and uh, it's changed the way we interact. Now, I still have those, I will say those friends of mine are people I still inter- interact with a, a lot. Uh, and I, I was at dinner outside a couple weeks ago with a friend who's a very, 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 very well-known person who's got very, very, very deep, very deep religious beliefs really has an active relationship with Jesus in a way that's so real to her. And um, we talk about it all the time. And I'm fascinated by how that gives her strength to do really hard things. And uh, so I'm, I'm but, but when I look at you and your story, it, and the way, you know, I was so fascinated when you started talking about this stuff years ago, when you started the podcast and even before that, when you were first on Marin and when you were first talking about this change, I, I, I really watched closely, Pete, because I felt like it was so difficult and brave of you to face where you came from, not with anger, really, with love, but with the realization that it was going to kill you if you didn't, if you <laughs> didn't become who you needed to become. And there's lessons that all of us have to take from that, I think. Oh, that's really beautiful. And it did kill me. And that, sorry to be so Jesus-y, but um, that's what he says. He keeps saying you have to die. He keep, And so does Buddha. And right. so does all the greats are saying the folder of intel that you think is you needs to go in the fire so you can come to dinner. So what I love about what you're saying is I was going to ask you about guns and movies, not, not for the hot button thing, but because a gun, like a car on fire, reminds us that 
even if it's not aliens, something is after all of us. It's called time. So we're all in the same predicament, but we forget. But you introduce a gun into a scene, it doesn't matter if somebody is um, a powerful person or a rich person or a poor person or a smart person. Or a, the threat is the same for all of us. So it's this unifying thing. But maybe perhaps more beautifully, you're talking about these dinners. And Jesus, again, sorry, but Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, like a, like a table, and everyone is invited. So what is it about eating? If you and I are, are thinking about things symbolically, food is the great thing. If I don't eat this, I die. So we come together as mammals and do this very vulnerable thing. I, I've been spending time in Ojai, and they're like, you know, a bobcat's going to get you when you're peeing or when you're eating because your guard is down. So you see dogs, my dog wants me to watch it while it's peeing. My dog wants me to watch it while it's eating. We know that these are vulnerable things. So what we do and who we eat with, we don't pee in front of people, but you know what I'm saying? We want, we want to break bread together is so much more than it seems. We think it's like a, oh, we'll, we'll have something to do while we chat. I think it's saying, let's do the most human thing we can do. Let's eat this pre-poop together and and digest it together. God, that's so poetic, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Pre poop. Yeah, that's great. It's wonderful. Uh, that's the name. And when we launch our, we had to launch a chain of restaurants that uh, called Pre Poop. Come eat uh, some Pre Poop. But uh, yeah, no, of course we're sitting there. We're sit. First of all, we're probably seated. Yep. So we have to first of all get ourselves up to stand. Inertia keeps us there, right? Uh, as opposed to standing. And, and Jesus yes. and Jews at the time would have been reclining. They would right. have been on the floor. Um, yes. So that all that all makes sense to me. Uh, and as far as guns in movies, Dave and I, you know, my creative partner David Levine and I are very aware of introducing weapons. In, into anything that we create. Um, our first movie has no guns, zero. And that wasn't an accident. That was a written down as a core thing that we yeah, Forgive me, but it's rounders, right? Yeah. And that was a, a very clear to us that we were not going to have any guns in that movie. You have to, like, dude, bad writers making a movie about illicit gambling in the basements of Manhattan are going to have the scene where they're cheating and they notice they have guns. We're back to we're ba- Sundance, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance even, kid. See even, the gun. When, even when they get caught cheating in a room full of cops, nobody pulls a gun. Yeah. It, there's just, that's not what's happening in that setting. They get yeah. beat up. Uh, but nobody, nobody fires a weapon. And we wanted to be able to tell sort of a modern crime story without a weapon. Because you don't need it. I, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. solidary, solidary Man starts with a diagnosis. What's that if not a gun from inside? You know what I mean? There's other ways. Because after every, I remember the new, the Jason Bourne came out, the movie Jason Bourne came out after, unfortunately this is, not that novel, but there, after there had been a shooting, like a, a very well-publicized shooting. And I remember walking around Manhattan at that time and seeing the poster, which was just Jason Bourne pointing a gun at you. And I was like, fuck you. Like, n- not obviously I love Jason Bourne, but no one wanted to see that. It's like when I saw The Dark Knight 
and knowing what happened at the Dark Knight, the scene where Bane comes into the stock exchange with the guns, I'm like, this isn't fucking cool. I hate this. <laughs> well, I would say Jason Bourne, I love those movies. And um, me too. As I'm sure the way you are, you know, you I go into any movie that my friends make and I have my my only critical faculty is figuring out what I love about it. Uh, <laughs> That's and, right. That's right. Uh, no, for real. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, and those movies, look, those are I mean, I think the first three Bourne movies are just incredible and uh, so hard. To, so hard. To, Tony Gilroy is a brilliant screenwriter. Yes. And Paul Greengrass, who directed the second two, was incredible. And, and Doug um, Lyman just did an incredible job on the first one. I know I understand your point. And, but uh, like sometimes you want, look, I, First Blood is a formative movie for me. But, you know, in, in that movie, John Rambo does not want to kill anybody. And he tries really hard not to kill anybody. And he doesn't use um, a gun. And the only person he kills tries to shoot at him. And so somehow that lesson, I saw that movie when I was 15 or 16 when it came out. And somehow the lesson of that, you know, if this stuff matters uh, when you use force and if you think about it, you have the opportunity to create a different kind of, of drama. And even in Solitary Man, you know, we don't tell you what the diagnosis is and exactly until much later in the movie because he, he doesn't, uh, you know, he never goes and gets the test in the beginning of the movie that he's supposed to. You just cut forward and you yeah. don't really know. Well, yes, it's we're looking for ways to correct me if I'm wrong, but we're looking for ways to level out the the false stuff, who we think we are, and bring it down to what we are. We're eating, pooping, uh, falling in loving, dying creatures that are all in this together. I keep thinking of the movie Crash, which very specifically addresses what you're talking about. There's the racist cop. Um, and then he rescues the woman that he was, you know, we love those sorts of stories. Um, and, and I'm just, I guess to put it back to you, I wonder what kind of movies we'll need or th that will happen moving forward, because I can feel the mythology needing to shift a little bit. It's so hard to tell, man. You know, also the, I would say for me, there's not that much calculation that goes into this stuff. You know, as you know, I do morning pages and I meditate. And through those things and then through talking to my lifelong best friend and creative partner, I figure out what I'm interested in and what I want to tell stories about. And I don't ever think about like a couple of times in our lives, we've kind of nailed something that a lot of people have are thinking about or will think about. A couple of times we've sort of landed in a place where our fascination intersected with the fascination of a group of people. But you know that sometimes we'll have if you have a long if you're lucky enough to have a long enough creative life, that may happen. But even on the movies that that happen less, the group of people that it mattered to, I feel a real kinship with. The people who connected with it, the way in which they connected means they were seeing something in the way that we were seeing it. And so, you know, I think about I think about the best work about Vietnam. And apocalypse it's it's funny. I was talking to Bill Simmons about this the other day. Like 
he was saying first blood's the best movie about vietnam and i it's just not it's a great movie but apocalypse now is and and uh and that movie gets richer to me and about more than vietnam the further away we get from it it's just about human beings it's just about the ways in which we can be terrible to each other the ways in which we have opportunities not to be um and the myths that we um the way we self mythologize the way we mythologize warriors and so when are people going to write about this era i i have no idea like solitary man which you brought up i remember someone wrote a review about that movie and they said this is the most accurate depiction of what bill clinton must have been like in, in real life <laughs> and they were saying this is like someone and, and i will tell you there were moments in it there used to be a line in the movie that i cut it was in the script where the character compared himself to clinton and that was actually in my mind a little bit uh but i didn't want it to be about that i wanted it to just be about this character and then some guy writing about movies like actually saw inside that that was one of the things I was interested in as a writer was that question yeah. of yeah. what does that guy tell himself about the choices that he made and the cost of those choices. Yeah. So this stuff can't come fully consciously. It has to just I, show up. I love that. So, something that Val and I have been talking a lot about. So we're looking for all these ways to encourage compassion and understanding while also having activism and standing up for the oppressed and all these other things. So please don't misunderstand me, but of course, having understanding is important. And we always go like, I told the story that I was walking through O'Hare airport recently with a face shield and a mask. Uh, and I've been tested. Everything's fine. But um, this was a while ago. And I just saw a guy with a shirt that said black guns matter. And I, and I was just like, ah, oh, it just immediately just, Literally, it triggered me. <laughs> there it is, guns, and it triggered me. And I spent so much time thinking about that guy. And then, to bring it back to what you're saying, I was like, that guy has also had the naked in high school dream. That guy has had the my teeth are falling out dream. That guy's had flying dreams where he woke up elated. At night, despite what's in his file, in his head, he dreams impossible worlds. He dreams impossible fractal geometry as he's falling asleep. So what I'm saying is, if I'm hearing you correctly, these stories that we come up with, it's a mistake to go to try and read the weather patterns and say, I'm going to write the movie that addresses this. You can only write what you're dreaming, what, what you're dreaming away. I'll say this. It would be a mistake for me to do it. Yeah. Other people can do it. It would be a mistake for me to do it. I have to just write about whatever's animating me. And now sometimes, so like I gave interviews when Billions was first coming out and this is before Trump was um, running for office when we were, you know, we wrote it in 14. So the pilot um, and 13 or 14, we wrote it. And, uh, but we did notice because right, you have your antenna up. So, we noticed that um, Americans seemed to be mistaking characteristics like verbal acuity, charm, charisma, wealth for qualities of character like kindness, empathy, selflessness. And they seemed to be celebrating the one and not the other. And so now that was something we noticed 
and realize we could create some characters to test this thesis out. And so you are thinking about, you're thinking about the world you're living in and how to tell stories about it that matter to you. We'd also met some billionaires who were like nation states and we'd met some U.S. attorneys who were like kings because of the amount of discretion that they have. And we realized if you set a United States attorney against one of these billionaires, you could have a, a construct that was like a Shakespearean kind of construct that you could you could tell over a long period of time. And then it happens, one of those things. It happened to land when the zeitgeist was ready for it. And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, it what we were fascinated by turned out to be something that a lot of people were fascinated by. Right. That's luck in a way. That's that's uh we I'm not gonna say like we worked our we work our asses off making the show. You know how 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 much just sheer effort and time it takes to make a show. Uh, when you're the showrunner and and I, but to give you a little bit more credit, I, there's no research required for my show. When I watch West Wing and when I watch Billions, I'm like, oh god, the the amount of leather bound books these guys must be cracking. A lot of work, a lot yeah. of research, but yeah. but but still, then the end, all, end result of it, like you you know, you bring the craft you have as a, a person who knows how to tell stories, but then like you know, hitting is just a tremendous amount of. Of luck, and you can, I don't. I don't know how to game it or calculate it. Like, I tried just as hard on something that doesn't work as well as on something that works well. I mean, you know, when you've written something, you know, when you've written a hunk, if it has the thing in it that you love, yeah. and those don't happen when you know. You'll know something's going to work, but you also know, kind of don't care. Like that has the thing. Yeah. Like I knew when we wrote the pilot of billions, I was like, well, that has the thing that we do. It's, it, they might not like, no one might like it, but it has the thing. Like it's the best we can do. Can you tell me? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you talk. I was going to say, tell me a story of a time when, and I'm going to load you with a very brief story of mine. There was a chapter in my book about anxiety and it was very free form and, and written about how I used to pray as a child for anxiety to go away. And I used to sing this little song um, that I didn't really, couldn't even believe because it wasn't working about casting my cares on God and, and I don't need them. And, and it was so sad to me, the thought of me with my teddy bears singing and it's not working and it's my fault. If I believed more, it would work. So anyway, my editor came back and was like, um, it was the most edited chapter and he had crossed, he was a great editor, Luke Dempsey. He, he edited it brilliantly, but that was a time when I was like, no, this has the thing. Like I I'm sticking with this because this breaks my heart and I know it's not essential. I Sorkin in his masterclass mentions the the scene in Fargo where she meets with someone she went to high school with Radisson at the Radisson. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't drive the story. It doesn't, but like, you know, when you have it, can you tell me something, a moment when people were like, cut it. And you were like, well, no, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, there are of course, many of those moments though though i so i don't know what it was like with hbo but i'll say on our show and i would say this to you if we were not on microphones um these are the greatest partners that i've ever had they literally just like raise questions they've never once made us do one note so they will raise questions they'll be like we think this is stronger and you know just as in life i'd say that what a great thing to learn from which is you know all I want to do is figure out how to satisfy their problems when they don't insist upon it. Um, if, I mean, no, you know, it's uh, so I would say that like any of those times there have been a few um, on the show where Dave and I 
knew exactly the way something was going to play. And some people asked us questions and we just said, we know, but I'm, I would, I can't, um, we're all working on this stuff together in all the whole way. Like, yes, of course I have the same amount of dumb Hollywood exec early in my career stories that you do, but I kind of don't carry them. I, I try to just like leave that stuff. There's no, um, when I was a young man, I think I used anger as fuel, but I don't think it burns very clean anymore. And so I try not to live in those places of fuck you. I'm going to, Right. Uh, succeed. I, I just don't, it's not useful to me and not for some noble reason either. Uh, it's just not useful. It doesn't leave you happier. It doesn't leave you on the other side, joyful. Uh, and the older you get, the more you want to find little pockets of joy and little moments of peace. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there've been, I'm sure there've been a bunch of those moments. What you try to do is learn the better way to articulate your point. I would say the useful thing for anyone listening who's an artist and wants to write or do stuff is like, when you know you have that feeling, your instinct is to go, listen to me, I fucking know. And that just makes the other person entrench. And the better thing to do is just find a way to get to a shared place without compromising that part of your vision. Show all the ways you're willing to compromise, all the areas find a way to test your theory of the case. And um, I mean, early on, Dave and I learned that, you know, there are times you could be wrong, like in, in, and this was a wonderful example of a director doing this perfectly. Uh, and it wasn't, um, he, he was right. Uh, we originally wrote the last scene, the last poker scene in rounders to be both play, neither player shows their cards ever till the end, till the showdown, when you see, Till, till the very end when Mike turns over his hand, he has the straight. And we wrote it, you know, Malkovich, you never know what he has, but Matt, you, you, you know the whole time. And I remember we, we wrote it and we said to the director, John, don't show the cards. You know, when you've read the script, the cards weren't there. We hid them in the script too. So you didn't know until you got to the end. And when we finished the movie and John edited it, he came to us. He was hit By the way, he was the boss. We were the writers. He was the director. But he came to us and he said, listen, I think we should show um, Matt Damon Mike's cards be- because I think you win more here with suspense, meaning can Mike suck Teddy KGB into betting when he has the straight? And that'll be better than surprise. He's like, sometimes you want surprise. And we said, we wrote this script in a basement. It was our vision. And he goes, yeah, yeah. You wrote the script in a basement. It's your vision. We, you know, we know this world, our script got all these people involved. And he goes, all true. How about this? We will go at my expense and we will play the movie to two audiences in a row. Once the identical movie, we won't change anything except there will be one shot of Mike's cards in my version and no shots of his cards in your version till the very end. And you guys can decide. And we wow. were like, well, that's very fair. Wow. This movie theater in uh, uh, New Jersey and we play the movie our way and it scores some number, not a great number, by the way, like a 68. And we play it with John's version and it also scores a 68. But sitting in the movie theater, it was just patently obvious to both of us 
that the movie was much better knowing. And Joe, the thing ended and John's like, look, the scores are the same. And we were like, you were correct. And you did this in such <laughs> an honorable, beautiful way. And thank you for that. And it was his version. And uh, that was a great way where he knew he didn't have to enlist us in the process. He, he didn't have to say, fuck you. I've made last seduction. You guys, this is your first thing. But he respected us as, as co-creators of this thing with him and as artists. And that, like, again, um, we all want to be our best all the time and we're never our best all the time. But I try to keep that in mind. And I try to respond to people that way the best I can. And I keep every year I try to get better at it. And some years I do and some years I don't. This is awesome. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> I just have to say another less even writing duo with their, you know, you have some heat on this already. You know, you got Damon, you got Norton, you're making this picture. So you got to have, you have the right to have egos at this point. And the movie scores the same his way. So there's a degree of humility in that moment. And, and you were just going off the feel in the theater. So that story could have just as easily been like, fuck you, we yes. were right. But you've been in those, but you, here's the thing that it's hard to understand if you haven't done this. You've been in those rooms. You do know. Forget the scores. You actually know. You yeah. do know when you're in the room. Yeah. If you're lying, unless you're lying to yourself, you know. Yeah. I find that to be the most instructive. Like, I hate the cards like everyone does. I hate the scores. I never need to look at those ever. Yeah. But sitting in the room, Pete, don't you feel you yeah. know? Oh, absolutely. I had such an awesome experience. I watched Popstar in one of those test screenings next to Andy. And what I saw him paying attention to was the, the unspeakable frequency that an audience makes when it's paying attention. Yeah. It's the whole thing. And, and yeah. so, you know, so yes, we could have said the other thing and he, but, but like we would have been lying and that we weren't I- interested in, in that. And yes, of course, when you're young like that, your ego gets big and, and, and you can definitely. Well, boondock some, Saints. It's, did you see uh, the Boondock Saints documentary? So this is true. This is not a generous statement I'm about to make, but there, I, but I, that the year the documentary came out, that was the Christmas present that Dave and I sent to everybody. We sent everyone that documentary. Wow. Like we, sent 50 co- like we sent out like 50 copies of that documentary. Because? Because Troy was so horrible. And uh, <laughs> Dude, like, the scene when he's in the bar and Wahlberg is there and like everybody's there. I was like, this is the devil at the crossroads selling. And, and because gold. when we first got to Miramax, you know, Miramax made rounders and all those people just wouldn't shut up about buying the bar and about how great. Troy was, and they were always comparing us to Troy, and there was just it was an endless thing. And so, in my mind, for whatever reason, like again, that, when that documentary came out, I, I mean, I just howled with laughter and sent it to a lot of people. But here's what's funny, and also like humility, like gives us all humility. There are people who would die for Boondock Saints, like their favorite movie ever. Like there are Boondock Saints, like what we were talking about earlier. Like Troy didn't happen to hit the zeitgeist. But Troy knew that he was on a frequency, that there were a lot of people who were on that frequency. Yeah. And there were a lot of people who would give a shit about that movie in a deep way. And if you go on like message boards and stuff, Twitter, you put Boondock Saints into Twitter, like there are fanatics for that film. Yeah. 
So, which, which I now as an older person understand that when you have that level of passion and commitment that that guy had to this insane vision, and he found a way to get it made with like, you know, Norman Reedus, like with good people. Yeah. Uh, as horrible as he is, clearly. I mean, it's like you ever read the uh, Michael Bamberger book about M. Night Shyamalan and the making of Lady and, oh, that's going to, I'm giving you, this is a true gift. Like I'm giving you the most amazing gift right now. <laughs> No, I mean, you have no idea like what I'm doing for you. This is your Thanksgiving. No, in fact, at the end of this podcast, if it's not coming out for a few weeks, you got to come back on and acknowledge. <laughs> it is as someone who does what you do for a living. Knight gave this guy, Michael Bamberger, who's a great writer, 100% unfettered access to the creative process on Lady in the Water. And you've just never read anything like it. It's just... Did somebody you know, hoisted on their own petard, sort of falling on their own. I mean, look again, Knight's a genius. There's no question. Knight's a genius, a genius, but a genius who's never told no. And a genius who's never challenged. It's just hard when they miss. He's a genius, like a full stop genius. Yeah. You know, when he hits it, he makes the biggest movie of the year. And you know, his big comeback, like over and over the guy's proven that he's a genius, but when he misses, it's just crazy. And the way people are around him is crazy. What I remember about that movie, I never saw it, but he was like, it was a bedtime story that I used to tell my kids. Like I was just improvising a story. And I was like, again, I acknowledge that he's incredible as well. But I was like, that smells like hubris to me, where you're like, the shit I make up for my kids at night is so good. I'm going to make people spend millions of dollars on it. If you do one thing after this What's it called? What's it called? You'll see. Michael Bamberger is the writer, and it's about Lady in the Water by (laughs) night. I mean, okay, I got it. You just got to kindle that thing. I, I want to talk a little bit about that because Troy, the guy who made Boondock Saints, loved Tarantino. And I love Tarantino. And you and love I love Tarantino. And I, I'm saying this for fun. In your vines, which again, were a long time ago, you're saying like, don't listen to the gurus. Don't read the books. Just write. And I was like, there's a balance. I'd love for you to talk about the balance of energy there. The humility that's needed to say, like, I don't know. And then the, the self-love and confidence to say, fuck it, I'm just going to write because you should be listening to me, which Troy seemed to have maybe too much of, or, or you can have too much of, but you can also have not enough of. Oh, but Pete, that comes back to rigor. Like, let's talk about the difference between Gary Goleman and somebody else. Like, Gary Goleman is, you know, to my money, arguably the best joke writer, the best writer of jokes in the world. Yeah. You have and good I certainly agree. have long, right. And the, uh, there could be someone else who's like similarly funny or thinks they are, but Gary, if you look at Gary Goldman, that guy, the amount of rigor that that guy puts into working on what he does. So he wasn't trendy. He didn't follow the, the, the sort of, um, the the easy road that a lot of other comics do, you know, he would walk in, he like, you know, didn't work blue f- a lot of the time, not out of some, uh, just because he wanted to challenge himself in that way. And it took Gary until he was 50 years old to become um, a hugely famous comedian recognized for his brilliance. I've been friends with him for a really long time. I was friends with him during, during the lowest parts of the journey. Um, and what, Gary and I talk about sometimes is, is rigor, uh, is the, the, you don't need somebody else's 
way of doing the thing. But what you need to do is constantly check your own progress. You need to get up and listen to the tapes of your set and not listen to the tapes of your set concentrating on the laughs, but listening to when you could make the laugh bigger or when the laugh wasn't there or what tag you could add. Uh, uh. So to get back to your exact question, the very first one of those vines, what I say is all screenwriting books are bullshit, all of them read screenplays, watch movies, and let them be your guide. And so what I mean to say is the answer is there. You know, if you want to write a con movie, don't go take a class at at, uh, the Sheraton in a a, a genre class about con movies. Go read a bunch of books about cons. Go watch a bunch of movies about con artists read those screenplays that led to those movies and then do the really hard work of trying to create your own and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it again. So like the study is really important. You got to study a tremendous amount. You, you have to be willing, like here, you and I are talking and, and basically every movie, maybe save one that we've mentioned, we've both seen or had exposure to, uh, as I like to tell people who want to do this stuff, that is the shared language we all have. Uh, so if you hear somebody mention a friend, you know, uh, talking about heist films and I mention Rafifi and you're scared because you don't like no French and foreign movies scare you. All right. That doesn't matter. Why did they mention Rafifi? What does that mean? Find a way to go watch that movie and right. think about it. This is, no, by the way, not for, if you don't give a fuck about being, doing this for your life, don't. Who cares? Well, watch what you want. If you want to do this for your life. <laughs> Go watch Rafifi and then go watch the Cirque Rouge and then whatever they make then watch Bob Flambeau, and then understand, okay, those three movies I can see the echoes of in 10 movies that I've watched that are American movies and then watch those movies and then walk away from those movies for a while and figure out how to create your own thing. Like there is a tremendous amount of study. And of course there's humility in that when you write your first draft, you have to be incredibly free. But after the first, this is why I like talking to comics. And this is why doing stand-up was so helpful to me and instructive to me because the, the, the constant refining of it, the, the, the freedom to say what you have to say, but then to apply craft to it and to keep learning that craft and to keep getting better at that craft, that's the difference maker. That's the difference between Gary Goldman and 150 other people who maybe played rec league basketball and can do a funny impression of their coach. It's like, you know, <laughs> dude, that's literally how I started. I do an impression of the coach. That's right. literally the beginning. Yes. But then you had to do a bunch of stuff to right. get there. Right? right. And yeah, that's, that's for me. Um, the, the balance is it, it's not in like taking some, class about how to write screenplays. I mean, I've never taken a class. I wasn't a film major. I was an English major, you know, but I've watched, I watch movies over and over and over again. And I, and I would say, I always prepare, like how great is it that you prepared for this even, right? You watch my movies, you watched enough of the show. You've thought about, you watch my vines. You've looked on Twitter, like you've done a bunch of work. And that's why your podcast is so successful because you're, not coming in just spitballing even though you could you're very quick you could do that but you know you could right but you decide all right if i'm going to do this thing i'm actually going to like i'm going to do it and i know 
the pain and I, I tweeted the other day for a very select audience. I tweeted, there is no feeling that's the equal to when you get to click closed on all the research when the podcast is over yeah. that you've done, right? Like that feeling of putting your questions and all the research away because you've gotten through the, it's like, oh my God, thank God I'm done with that. Oh, you have it's, no idea. On I, my I mean, desktop right now is a word doc called James L. Brooks. Right. When I, I trashed it because it was just, it's nonsense. It's just little words and areas and stuff. And to throw it away and be like, you did it. It's done. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the such, I mean, when I do my podcast, like I do so much research, like I had Elvis Costello and it was such, you know, I have Elvis Costello on the podcast. I like, obviously I had to read his book. I had to, I did think, and then when you just get to like, it was amazing doing it, but man, moving past it, you know, being done. Yeah. And like, I didn't like school very much. I didn't, I didn't. And here we are making ourselves going to school again. Basically. Yeah, it's like going to school again. But yeah. the point, the broader point, Pete, is all of this stuff requires you to be willing to turn yourself inside out. And so, yeah, you can't, that's why you can't mistake like going, when I say, don't worry about taking screenwriting class and be free, give yourself permission to create. I mean, what I'm really saying is give yourself permission to take the risk of giving a shit. Give yourself permission to take the risk of trying to do the very best work you can, which is terrifying because if you fail, you are going to be sad. You are going to feel like a failure for a minute and then pick yourself up and do it again. And you know, those feelings, like we both had that feeling of making a deal with HBO or whomever, and they love the idea and they even love the script and they offer you the next deal as they're passing on the thing that they're not going to make. And it's when you've really tried, it's crushing. I don't want to make light of it. You, you know, you walk around the city and your shoulders are slumped and you feel like a loser and everybody, if you don't feel that way, you didn't actually try. Mm. The discipline is to like make it quicker and quicker that you get back to yourself. I had huge Right. I mean, I love it. Fail faster. Find the fun is, is something I learned about uh, video game design. They say fail faster, get right. better failing, fail faster. Don't waste time. Get to that fail faster because, yeah. you know, on the other side of it is, is the good stuff. And, and, and so, I, I mean, I, you have to be, I have to be willing to try and failing again. I got that from stand up too. You know, there's no feeling like bombing. Really bombing when you try. Not if you're, hey, let's get drunk and get up in an open mic. But, you know, I did a year and a half of stand-up, like four, five nights a week. And wow. it, and that involved a lot of fucking failure, you know, because especially when you're doing that, early on, you will have a night that goes really well. Because nobody, no one who's not, right, a lot of people who try to do stand-up are insane. But if you're not an insane person, you're only doing it because you know <laughs> you have some facility with like words and you you're funny in your group of friends and you know, right. So you will have a decent night early on when the, one of the first 10 nights you'll make people laugh. In fact, I, I just interject. If you're not insane, you're so ahead. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you're looking around going, wow, everyone seems to be insane. Chances are you're not insane. And that is, you're like five car lengths ahead. I mean, all of us who have ever done it are a little nutsy, but I'm saying, insane, you know, really like the people who just are insane in those open mics. Like basically Dan Soder and I were in this open mic group kind of together and we were the only not insane people. And yeah. both of us, you know, it all, 
worked out fine for both of us in, in, in right. life. But the point is, then, man, I went into a black hole of bomb. You know, I would bomb sometimes. Like, and that feeling of bombing with material that you thought was good and that worked three nights ago, it's, you know, it's humiliating, but then it's just this, it has this ability to clarify and strengthen you. It's a thing that only people who've bombed in comedy understand how much you get out of bombing and what it gives you in the rest of your life. Buddy. If I, okay. So I, I already talked about this on the podcast that came out with me and Val the James L. Brooks interview was incredible, but it was not what I was going for. I was trying to get to all these different places. And afterwards, I had to do a little postmortem. This is what I learned from stand-up. And I, all of the things that I forgot to do with James L. Brooks, I did with you. And I wouldn't, this interview would not be as great as it is if I wasn't going in with a little bit of a valley. Again, it's a fantastic episode. And I don't think he felt that way, but I was like, shit, I forgot some of my chops. And then like, so I'm going into this. I have a drive to be rigorous with you. And I'm like, I, so if I would bomb at stand up, now I look at that as the bow, I'm pulling the string on the bow back and it sucks and it's tense and I'm shaking, but the next set, I'm going to let the arrow go from that bomb. And it's going to make that one even if it's five people in a, in a Chinese restaurant, I'm going to need it. And, and trying to manufacture a drive, why you need it, is, is, is so much of it. Well, it's what got me to be able to write Solitary Man because I was stuck. And I was stuck halfway through that script for four years because it was the first one I was writing alone without Dave. We directed that movie together, but it was a very personal story. I had to write it alone. And I was stuck. And it wasn't conscious. Oh, I'm going to do stand-up now because I'm stuck. But it was like, I was journaling. I was like, you know, I always wanted to try this. I always wanted to see if this is possible. And in doing stand-up, I somehow got myself past the fear of failing on the, in the script, you know, and I was able to come back to it and finish it because I got to the other side of what, you know, I got my seven minutes that kind of worked, but that wasn't even the point. The point was I found my way through that fear, of yeah. the terror of trying to get up there and do that thing. And I was, I released myself and the best part of it. So the best part, I guess, was getting to be able to write that script and make this movie that mattered to me, you know, get Michael Douglas in my movie, which was insane. But, uh, but before that, every time I was ever in a comedy club, even if it was my, my closest friends, even if it was Alan Havey, who's family performing, some part of me had jealousy. And then a year and a half into in stand-up and getting through it to the other side and all of that went away and I have no desire to do it. And I'm in love when I'm in the clubs. All I want is I'm there as an audience and because I, I, I exercised it yeah. and I had to get through it. Uh, and it was an amazing thing to risk, which is again, part of why I always try to encourage people to take those risks. Uh, Cause if there's this little voice inside you, it's there for a reason guiding you. Mm. And to and to really bathe in failure for a while makes you realize, oh, the thing that I thought I couldn't survive is survivable. And I think that has to inform your relationship with failure when you're writing. Your own you letting yourself down, those days where you're just writing crap 
By the way, you had a tip that I, I just wanted to tell you that I thought I was the only one that did this. If I'm working on a scene and it just stinks, I take it out of the script and put it in its own document. You and do? For some reason. It I, works. It totally works. I'm like, this scene sucks. And I just copy it and I paste it in a new document. And I always use ISO, meaning isolated. And I and it opens it up and it's too long and then I trim it and then but like it just you can just throw it out you can trash it you can start over I yeah. don't know why it works either but I do I it all the time either. I mean it only happens probably once every couple of scripts but I do do I like it, it, when I figured that out and yeah. I, then it's psychological but just taking it out of it but yeah, I guess it has to do with this has no ramifications for like the thing that's, that's right happening yeah hey I was so happy when you put Havy on your show have you you haven't had him on this show right. No, I, he hasn't done this one, although I he'd really enjoyed so, He'd be so good on this. You know, really? his story. Yeah, he'd be a great guest for you, actually. Even, he would be a great guest for you. And, you know, especially when you think about this resurgence he's had in his life as an actor where he crushed it on Mad Men. You know, he had yeah. a huge part. And he has a really big part on Billions that he's been on every season. He has like six or seven episodes a season. So it's like he has this other life now after being... You know, John Stewart's to this day says the best stand-up set he ever saw was Havy at the Cellar. He said it in uh, Vanity Fair. Wow! And so, like, you know, Havy was the best in New York, and it's just a fact. You would, I think, you would have a good time with him on the show. I gotta, I gotta have him on. I, I will say, talking about the way crashing was, I, I don't know how it is on Billions, but like, Judd really wanted to keep us. Um, I don't know if he would agree with this, but this is how it seemed to me. He wanted to keep us sort of out of our comfort zone. So as much as I kind of wanted to maybe write something like the Coen brothers and, and even imagine the shots. And, and that's sort of what I'm trying to do in the next projects that I'm working on, have a little bit more deliberacy, um, if that's a word. Havy it isn't, but that's okay. I know, but I mean, Shakespeare, how many words did he make up? Um, so I'm saying uh, Havy came in and literally it was like the, the warm-up comic has a meltdown. And I was just like, I'm sorry. There's been so many versions of this script. None of them are here. <laughs> like, none of them are here. And he riffed. And I was like, you just have to lose it. And that day, we were on the set of Rachel Ray. It's so hard to do um, deliberately ugly stand-up. I had to do it, and he had to do it. Yes. We had people in the crowd, background actors, who I was like, these people are legitimately disappointed in me. Me. They, they, they don't understand that I'm That's supposed to be a guy sweating bullet, saying the wrong thing. I'm looking at people in between takes and they're looking at me sideways. I swear I'm not making it up. And they did the same thing to Havy because he... He said stuff that we didn't use. Uh, it wasn't that awful, but I was like... No, if you tell Alan, to, Pete, if you tell Alan to go dark... Yes, yeah. but he he did he has a great line um, that he riffed where he's talking about how ungrateful we are and how kids get like a new Xbox for Christmas and he's like the generation before me they'd get a pinwheel and an orange and they'd be happy for it and I was like this sucks because I'm gonna get credit I'm the writer of this episode I'm gonna get credit for pinwheel and an orange. So here I am saying that was Alan Havy, but not just Alan Havy, it was Alan Havy under the gun. There were so many times when I was like, had to say to actors, like, we don't have it. Um, I, I can just tell you sort of what happens. 
but you need to riff it. And, and you know, riff. I think of you all the time because I'm in your where I we yeah we shared the same office. It's the same office, and so I, I like your show is I I uh, I really feel a connection like to because of uh, just being in that same space in those yeah in those offices. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, your show seemed to me hard to do and and so good. I can't wait to see the next thing you do. I really appreciate that. It was hard to do. And it was really hard to do. Sort of when it ended, there was all the bad feelings. And then there was relief as well. Because I was like, this was really... When you cast actors that look like your parents to recreate fights that you had with your ex-wife and they're there. And I'm looking at Fred Applegate, who's incredible, who looks like my dad. And I'm telling him to say something back to me that my father really did say. Um, that's what the money is for. You know what I mean? Like, like It's like B.B. King says they pay me to travel. I was made to like dry shave my psyche. You know what I mean? No, no, <laughs> no shaving cream, no water. I'm just. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> not to make myself too important, but it was difficult. I was always hoping to run into you guys. I never I, I'd walk through the billions sets. And, and you uh, weren't, we were never there at the same time. You know, when you were in the offices, we were probably just writing the next season or something. Like yeah. That. And who knows when we're, I mean, I know we're going to go back, but yeah, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to feel like. I, I have no idea what production is going to feel like. Are you doing stand up in front of people yet? No. You know, I, I, I said to Val the other day, I thought it was funny. I was like, I've always wanted to take a break from stand up, but not while other people are doing stand up. Right. So it's like, I would like, so it's this weird gift. And by the way, I'm actually, this is sort of the, the first day I'm lifting out of sort of a funk. So I want to concede that it hasn't always been like, what a gift. But there was a strange gift where I was like, Daniel Tosh has this great line about the end of the world. And he's like, every time a Christian group predicts the end of the world and they're wrong, I'm disappointed. And he goes, I don't, don't, he goes, don't get me wrong. I don't want to die. I want all of us to die. <laughs> and I was like, that is the funniest dark joke I've ever heard in my life. And that's sort of how I felt here. I was like, I don't want to take a, a break from stand-up. I want all of us to take well, a break. Well, you've won. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm realizing, you know, I miss that exact thing. Like if I could go into the West Village, which always felt too crowded, we're shooting, there's so many um, people flooding into our shots and, that sounds like heaven to me. I'm like, I don't know if you watch shows now and I'm like, look at how they're hugging and, and people are touching and no, of course, rubbing his face. No, of course. I, um, I would say I, from the comedy thing, because so many of my friends are comedians, I really miss like the odd night when I'm out in New York and I finish shooting and I'm somehow near the cellar. And I do miss, and I'm honorary, so I can go sit at the table. And I, I really do miss getting to drop in and seeing Gary or Dan or Havy, or you know, even like Gnome and Esty. Like I miss sort of just like, and and if you look at that as the stand-up world that we can both share, you know, I I miss going to hang with Perbiglia when he's getting his thing ready. At I mean, he and I got to see each other. Um, we zoom and stuff and talk, but like. I do miss gathering with my friends in these sort of public places where we're all able to just, 
you know, especially in New York, like that, that, no. and, and I know the whole world is missing this. So I'm, I still talk, you know, like everyone I just mentioned, I think I still talk to everybody, but it's not really the same as sort of like the way we would collide. And, you know, that feeling of walking into the cellar, a place I've been going with Havy since I first moved to New York when I was 21 and like the feeling of going in there and everyone, people be at the table, but Alan usually sits at another table by himself and then going to see him and then hanging out. Like I do miss all the little markers, yep. like whatever my favorite coffee place is in the city, wherever, you know, Washington Square Park. I just miss all these different parts of, of life in that way. A lot, like so much. I didn't know how good we had it. I would, I would be at the cellar and, and I'd stay and I'd watch Mike Birbiglia. And he and I have talked about this many times. He's one of, he's like a true friend. You know, we have like showbiz friends. Yeah, yeah, me. I mean, I'm sure you know that Mike and I are super close. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, we talk constantly, yeah. I talk to Mike almost every day. And and my wife, Val, thinks that's so adorable. And I want to put this back to you um, because your work is very, um, you love a good bromance and you love men. I'm not saying you don't love women. I'm saying you, you just enjoy the complexity of uh, what's expected of men, what men really are, You're and, right. uh, and, and that conflict. And what I'm realizing as a man, Mulaney has a great joke about his dad not ha- having any friends. And I'm like, Jesus, my dad, he would he would disagree with me. He would be like, I have friends, Tommy, me, and Joni, Joe, Le- <laughs> and uh, he would name 50 people. <laughs> In the same way that I would go, what are you kidding? I, I have a thousand friends. Everybody that's been on this podcast, I don't say this with, with a few exceptions, but almost everybody, I could call them and have coffee with them. Right. But the difference between that and a friend is something I'm learning. I'm 41 years old yeah. and I'm finally starting. So I'm, I'm finally spinning this back to you. Men, as I can see it, I benefit from a job that forces me into intimacy, like going to the club. So the, the memory with Mike, I went to the cellar and then we walked, we were both off the L train, but we walked up to 14th and then all the way over to, to first, just for the walk of it. And this is like so close to me, whereas again, all men and women are different, but like women seem to struggle less with that. Like, let's just have a tea and talk about our feelings. That's a stereotype, but I'm no, saying. I agree. Men make a decision. Men make a conscious decision of when they're going to open up maybe and become yeah. friends. Yeah. And uh, that's true. You you let them on the board. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. It's funny. Mike, Mike and I were talking a couple of days ago about one of the great uh, afternoons was I went. On the, when the, on the Broadway show, one afternoon, I went alone and I just hung with him while he got ready to do the show. I'd seen the show in all the forms leading up to it. And I watched him. I, so I hung in the dressing room right up until the moment that he went on. Watched the show. Went back and got him. And we went and walked and got coffee. And then I walked him back to the theater for the second show. That's And it was just like, I wish I, what we were talking about was I wish I would have stopped in the middle of that and that the two of us would have said, look at, look at what's happening. Look right at what now. we're doing. Yeah. You're yeah. on Broadway. We're hanging in your dressing room. Yeah. We're going to get coffee. You're going back to Broadway. My friend is on Broadway. You are on Broadway. You're in my, like, like this whole way 
And, and I'll say one of the things about Mike that we do for each other, and it's one of those friends is like, so when Billions was up the pilot, he's, he and Tom McCarthy were like two of the five, two of like five people I had at, at the earliest screening before we showed it to the network. Like just, I wanted smart friends to look and all, you know, he's so amazing. Mike at, at, at encouraging that kind of behavior. Like I go to his table, like we do all that stuff. Yep. yep. And yes, that's, I think that's one of the ways you become in our business friends is like you open the kimono with the work to the other person yeah, yeah, yeah. and invite them in at, at the early enough stage where it's like, can you help me make this better? You right. know, and it's vulnerable. And as you're saying, like, it's hard sometimes for dudes to be vulnerable. Right. Um, but that's, so that's why how, part of how oh. our, my relationship with, 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 with my is, but I mean, all these people that I mentioned to you, like Gull, Gary Goldman, I mean, Gary, my wife, is who Gary talks about in the great depression. Who's Amy, who basically said to him, you got to go get shock therapy. Like he's an intimate friend of ours. And yeah. um, uh, I've made it a point to try to make those friendships. My father doesn't have a ton of friends. He has friends. He's a popular person and successful dude. But I think our, my generation, I'm 13 years older than you. We're not in the same generation, but my generation, I don't know. It was important to me to figure out, how to have actual real friends and do the things required, check in with them, be vulnerable with them. Uh, you said the word, dude, it's written. Oh, it was written on my hand. I, I washed my hands so much, uh, but I wrote vulnerability on my hand because I was realizing Val and I do these Friday episodes and I had a real breakthrough where I was like, I always thought it was like, we got to psych ourselves up to accept change and growth. And, and we have to be, um, full of coffee and confidence to be present and you have to be excellent to accept and forgive reality and I was like I actually think it's far more vulnerable than that and when I remember just be vulnerable I, I think that's again I don't want to make it about men and women but the women in my life aren't as adverse to that type of vulnerability as I think what I would struggle with at the beginning of Mike and I's friendship was we might be like letting our personas have coffee. And then slowly, I have a great memory of Mike when he was off Broadway. So I forget the name of the theater, but we went to lunch after the matinee. And he was just like, like, I would say this if he was here, I'm sure he will hear this, but he was just a broken person. Like we, and we bonded over our brokenness and it was fucking the real shit well i must say though nobody's better in a state of brokenness than no one's fun <laughs> in a state of brokenness i mean mike's pandemic the his pandemic jokes are the best thing in the world I yeah mean, i won't you know he hasn't said them all publicly but you know i'm sure you know but like nobody is better at sort of like mining this stuff i think than uh mike is and i agree with you about the personas at lunch is a great line that's a really brilliant <laughs> and by the way, it doesn't just apply to performers, right? I mean, that's an incredibly deep insight, Pete, right? For well, all of us. I, I think I got it as we're unpacking it. Ram Dust used to say, we're all wearing sure. these space suits or we're wearing these costumes. And he's saying most of human interaction is just saying, do I look like what I want to look like? And you look like what you want to, oh, Brian, you look like a writer. And uh, do I look like a comedian? And we just sort of tell each other our costumes are on straight. And really the real juice of life is to go, can I take this ridiculous mustache off? 
Yes, and, and these weird glasses off. And I don't mean your glasses. I mean my disguise glasses. You know, this gets back to the being I'm Ram Das, Baba Ram Das, a perfect person. To, I mean, this gets back to figuring out how to be comfortable in your own skin and how to in 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 challenging situations how to figure out how to relax into yourself and and let who you are exist and yes. what happens is you can then exhale a little right. bit and and it's not for anybody else it's it's but it allows you to be better to everybody else uh when you take off the costume but right. it's hard and, and it's, it's hard costume. because that doesn't mean it gives you license to be an asshole <laughs> it's, it's no it's not like well this is who i am suck it it's not what i'm saying uh because when you truly allow yourself to get comfortable in your own skin i'm talking about being comfortable with the best of who you are and trying your best to get rid of all that other dross in a way and it's hard it's yeah. really it's really hard but it's kind of like this pandemic has been a great opportunity what to figure that out, if you're lucky enough to have sustenance, you know, most people, so many people are not lucky enough to have sustenance. And it's like, you be myself, I, I can't fucking get food on the table and I don't know how to take care of my kids. And I think that's for sure the way so much of the world is. But if you're in a privileged group of people who are able to try to make art during all this because your basic needs are met somehow, then it's a, been a time where you kind of have a choice to try and keep peeling away layers, right? Right. I, yes, I was going to say in Solitary Man, here's this very shiny, polished ego that we sort of envy, you know, like he's got the great suits. I'm like, God, I hope I look like that. How old is he in that movie? 65 or 66. Yeah. 66. 66. I'm just like, why does this man look better than me? He's cooler than me. He's, he, I, I, but that's the point. And then what I'm saying is going back to Jesus and you have to die to figure out who you really are this pandemic has taken away so much of my identity and that's either a tragedy or an opportunity because you just don't. And I think that's why we see a lot of people having meltdowns on social media and stuff or, or becoming TikTok obsessed or whatever it might be. I am not even thinking of a specific person is because we're running out of mirrors. We don't have as many mirrors. I can't walk into a club and have people be like, Hey, it's the guy. Do you want to do the thing? Um, so then I go, well, who am I without that? But that is a powerful opportunity. I'm going to say for awakening for all of us, if your basic needs are met, absolutely. If your basic needs are met, if, if they're not, I completely understand if you're not like, what an opportunity, but you know, in Churchill in the throes of, of world war II, the great quote, he goes, what an opportunity. I mean, they were in the corner and he goes, what an opportunity that that's, that's a man who knew where his next cigar was coming from, but he could see it. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're right. And, and, um, and anyway, for me, I have to think of it as an opportunity to try to be better, more generous, kinder back to, like I, I said, come from my own skin. Yeah. Yeah. You I'm have sorry. to. And, and, and the more, and just as an artist, the more you can get rid of the self-consciousness, the better the work has a chance to be. So you want to keep trying at that. Oh God, you're great. I really, I'm really enjoying this. I hope you are too. Will you indulge me? I know we're we're not bitter people. We we're trying to run on joy and generosity. And and what you just said, I was like, this Christmas is off the chain. I mean, I've been going out of my way. 
I've never really given a crap about Christmas as much in the gift giving sense. I love Christmas. But like this one, I'm like really doing the deep research and trying to think about what, because I want to awesome. feel that love. It's for me. It's for me. Right. I'm not saying that as the cliche. I'm like, don't confuse this. This is about me that's and, awesome. I, and you. I hope you like it, but it's about me. I think that's a, a, a part of the pandemic process for me. Um, what was I just going to say? You're saying oh, indulge you. Yeah. Will you indulge me? I'm thinking about Affleck. Uh, put that scene in Argo to that studio on sunset where I think they were pitching Goodwill hunting. And somebody said, I only took the meeting to tell you no one's going to make your movie. Yeah. And he uh, wrote that into Argo. It never happened with the movie Argo, but he just wanted to give himself that treat. And I'm glad he did. I like that scene. So maybe you know where this is going. You're pitching rounders and everybody told you it was not just a bad idea, but that it was an unmakeable idea. Will you please indulge me? I just, this is just, let's, let's well, smell our own farts for a while. I well, want to, I'll good. happily tell it. No, it's so, so when we wrote it, we didn't have any, um, we didn't have an agent, you know, and, and um, Dave met a young manager who hadn't sold any, anything, maybe one TV movie, he's 24 year old kid. And, and this kid liked the script and he's like, I think we can get an agent off of this. And, so we sent the script around to all the agencies and because it's our, was our first thing, I wrote down every response because it mattered so much. And so like the first agent said, it's overwritten pass. The second one said it's underwritten pass. Like I still don't know what overwritten or underwritten mean. <laughs> and um, to this day, someone would say, you know, Oh, nobody cares about poker. Someone else would say there are four poker movies com- that are going to get made. And it was just down the line, rejection, 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 rejection. Wrote them all down a big yellow legal pad that was in the office I was working in for my office job. And um, I had this pad. And, and so it was like, you know, what WME, what, what, I mean, it wasn't WME then. It was so what Endeavor said, what William Morris said, what CAA said, and even down the line to like the smallest agencies, innovative artists, whoever else. And, um, and then Rounders sold. And then Dave and I sold two pitches really quickly after that. And then uh, but oh yeah, so but this is before the pitches. Rounder sells. Two days later, Rounder sells on a Monday, uh, and I remember they were reading it on the weekend. And sells on a Monday. The deal closes on a Tuesday. Gets announced on a Wednesday in Variety or whatever. Thursday, every agency calls us. Every single agent that passed, and when they called, hey, this is blah 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 from Endeavor. I would just read them their pass. <laughs> just say like what changed like what changed man you know uh i'd go you said it was overwritten and, and they all were like well no, no no my reader read the script i didn't read it or i misunderstood you know they just all had some bullshit but well look and it's this wasn't to um take a shot at them but the gift that that gave me pete was it made me realize that they don't know that they don't have some judgment on the intrinsic work of a piece of work they just do a calculus about the market they're going to be wrong more than they're going to be right. It's safer for them to say no because they don't have to expose themselves to ridicule. Uh, and once you learn that lesson, it makes you have to come up with your own North Star because what we often do is offload the judgment to an authority figure. We're trained to do that at a young age. Coach, can I make the team? Uh, and we offload you know, the drama guy picks who gets to be in the plays. 
So we offload this judgment and there's a comfort in that because if I don't succeed, it's because, well, that guy said I wasn't good enough. But what I learned in that moment with rounders was, well, no, actually I have to become the arbiter. Now I can take criticism and I can use it, meaning I can hear uh, if someone says something that makes sense, I can improve the thing. Or if enough people say something and, it, and then suddenly I see the piece differently, I can abandon it. I can say this one's not right. But I can also say they don't get it yet. Uh, there, I know that this thing's got, got it intrinsically and I have to find another way to get it to the world. And I had this, I've had this happen to me over and over and over and over in my career. And so uh, it doesn't... I don't want to be Pollyanna. So it doesn't make it hurt less in the moment. I want, I'm not telling you if you're listening to this, that the reject, that, that you're wrong to hate being rejected and you're wrong to feel bad because I still feel bad all the time when it happens. Mm. Like I said, it's just quicker to recovery. And when I feel bad at the same time, I feel bad. I do know it's not dispositive. It's not a judgment. That's final. Um, but it does not mean it doesn't sting. It stings. Uh, it hurts. It, you, you still, doesn't matter that I've been doing this for over 20, you know, for like 25 years and I have a lot of movie posters on the wall. Uh, they give you no solace in the moment of rejection. Yeah. But you learn to get better at picking yourself up. And, and the other big weapon you have, so let's say the thing is rejected and you don't see the path to realizing it. The biggest thing, and this is useful, I think, no matter what you do in the world. Like, so the weekend before Rounders came out, two reviews came out. Uh, both of them destroyed it. It was Time and Newsweek. It was, they, they released theirs early, somehow the Friday before the Friday the movie got released. And both papers killed it and killed the writers and when I read those reviews, it was my first movie. I had nothing else. I had quit my job uh, because I had a career, I thought. And, and no bullshit, I went like into the fetal position on the floor. Like I, I, I happened to be, my, Amy and I happened to be out at my parents' house. So I was in my childhood room, like visiting for the weekend. These reviews came out. And I remember going to my room alone and just kind of getting on the floor and just feeling like, oh my God, what's my career? It's over before it started. Like, before the movie came out and those two magazines meant everything then this is before the internet really there was an internet but it didn't really like those things were millions and millions and millions of people read time and newsweek then and there wasn't much else like those things were just in every doc every parent adam every doctor's office and this part's going to sound fake but this is just true i woke up the next morning and so that night was horrible i woke up the next morning and I suddenly had the thought that those people couldn't stop me from writing. So they couldn't stop me from writing the next thing, which meant they couldn't take anything away from me. And that freedom in that instant changed me forever. That's one of those times where you're different for the rest of your life. I went from being crushed to being completely upright and completely understanding that the part of this I like the best is the creating of the thing. And that, that, yes, those reviews could hurt. I didn't lie to myself. Those reviews could hurt the commercial and critical prospects of this piece. They could sure make it harder for me to get the next thing going, but here's what they couldn't stop. Me getting up 
and turning on the computer or the typewriter and creating the next thing. And that I could do something that most people just wouldn't wake up and do that day. I could put words on a page that came from my imagination and I could live in that ether for as long as I wanted to. And that Pete was freedom and it took power completely away from them. Again, in fairness, if you're out there listening and someone wrote or said something mean about you, it didn't make the words not sting. It still sucks, but it made it that it wasn't final. And it made it that I had a weapon talking about weapons earlier. The weapon I had was my own work, my own sweat, my own ideas. And that weapon turned out to be stronger than their weapon for me in that moment and ever since. Love it. Love it. It brought to mind, I, I, I bought, I, I encourage this is a good gift idea for people. Buy an old Rolling Stone for somebody. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a good one. And they're cheap. I, and I love Steve Martin. So I bought myself. It's sort of sad now. Uh, nobody had that idea for me, but I was like, I'll do it for myself. And I bought Steve Martin on the cover of some 70s issue of Rolling Stone. And what struck me when I got it was that it was the most glowing puff piece I've ever seen. And I read it knowing that Rolling Stone had massacred his records. Right. Like when his records came out, it was very popular to be like, what is this guy doing? This sucks. He's doing, he's literally doing visual jokes on a record. You can't even see what he's doing. And that ended up being the magic of it. So, but what, not to misunderstand your point, what I think Steve realized, I hope, is that like he can get panned, but he still is the one that gets to put his imagination on stage. And that's correct. Yeah. No, that's completely correct. Did Judd ever introduce you to him? No, I've never met him. I'm sort of afraid of meeting Steve Martin. I know Mike's met him a bunch of times and, th- and he's great, but he's one of those guys that um, if he was in a bad mood. Yes. <laughs> I was at a poker table with him and um, he was fine. Perfect. But, uh, but I, tr- I chose not to try to really engage. So he meant what he meant. To, he, he meant, you know, think about my age. Like I was exactly the kids by, I was the kid buying all those records. I'm the kid doing the impression of you. You were him. I'm saying I, 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 you know, cruel shoes when it came out the book, like I had the book, you know what I mean? Like I, all of it. Um, and, uh, so I was at this poker, this celebrity kind of poker thing for charity and they sat me at Steve's table and I just chose to just be like, shook his hand. I didn't say a word about it because I knew like, yeah. he doesn't want that. Um, but I figure cause of your proximity to Judd that maybe you would have, been able to sort of work that out because of Judd. I met Seinfeld, and even that, I think I shit the bed a little bit because he said What'd that you do? why he said he liked. I did this thing on the Pete Holmes show called New Material Seinfeld, which I was very proud of. It was a bit that I just used to do in life. I, I would just pretend to be Seinfeld workshopping new ideas, yeah. And um, we ended up doing it with my friend Joe DeRosa, who's sort of my Alan Havy, <laughs> he's sort of like a grumpy, funny guy, and um. Seinfeld said he liked it. And I went like this. Let's talk about doing a visual gag on a recorded medium. But I went like as if he had blown me away. And as I acted out this like, 
oh my God, I can't believe it. I looked at him and he was looking at me like Jerry Seinfeld would look at somebody that did a large embodied enthusiastic gesture. He was not rude and I'm reading into this, but I think I was like, oh, I, I fucked oh, up. You, I you were just, the problem is, I mean, this would be like, he cares a lot about cool. Right. I wasn't cool. I should have been that's, like, no, but that's oh, your gener- but, but Pete, that's your gener, that's your whole thing. You and Mike and your generation actively don't care about cool. So you had to be the person that you were, but that's just like he and Mario Joyner together are never doing that gesture. Right. They're right. just way, way, way too cool to express right. themselves in that way. That's right. It's the same thing when I met Larry David. All I said, Brian, I just said, huge fan. And he looked at me like I farted in the elevator. It's well, like I've done right, because you're a fellow professionally not supposed to. I will say I, it's too much. I can't really tell this whole thing because it's too personal. There's too much. <laughs> but I will say that the first few times I met Joel Cohn, who is my true hero of filmmaking, like the number one for me, the, from the Cohn brothers, I just couldn't. The part of it I'll tell is we went to dinner at their house, Amy and I, Fran's the greatest, and Joel's the greatest. We went to dinner and I developed a tick at dinner where I couldn't stop saying his name. I love it. It was so embarrassing. I couldn't stop. And I hardly knew, but Amy said that she, Fran, and Joel. And like every minute, I was like, Joel, will you pass the potatoes? Joel, Joel, what happened when you were on set with Clooney, Joel? And I, I, you know, and this is me after I'd made like Ocean's 13. Like, I mean, I was really in the business and we knew all the same people. Yeah. But I couldn't get hold of myself. When he got up to do the dishes, I followed him to the sink and started doing the dishes with him in the sink. And uh, like, I couldn't, and I knew like, what am I doing rolling up my sleeves in his sink? You know, but, but, but but I did. And, uh, and, and I knew it, like I I left and I I said to Amy, how did that go? And, 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 and and she said, well, we're never getting invited back. That's how that went. We're not, we can't go back. And I was like, oh no, that bad. And she was like, we've known each other since we were very young, 19. I was, and she's like, yeah, Brian, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Like you can never, it took me like now I we can, t- I can text Joel. He'll text me back, but it took me like 20, like 16 years to un, like, it took me like 16 years to undo how wow. goofy I was. I just couldn't, Pete, I just couldn't stop because he's my, you know, he's the reason I, yeah, he's everything to me. And I, I just couldn't stop. I don't want to force this because you mentioned being friends with Matt Damon. Matt Damon is a, is that way for me. Here's why, in a nutshell. It's 1996. I go to see Goodwill Hunting in Burlington, Massachusetts. And I saw a kid from Cambridge Ringen Latin, which was the high school, you know, that my high school plays sports again. You know, it's like yeah. you were the guys that told me we could be in the cathedral of entertainment. We could be on the big screen. And it's not a long story, but when I met him, uh, I, I, I did a thing for water.org with him. And then I saw him at a party. And I've told this story a million times on this podcast. So just real bullet points. The mistake I made, he was in a circle huh. with his wife. And I opened him. I didn't force him. I tapped him to have him open out into a new uh-huh. uh, stratosphere with me. And uh, this is the only 
uh, couplet of dialogue you need. Pete, have you been back to Boston lately? Matt, no. Not no. Like oh, you, no. You're just trying to end it. Completely understandably. Wait, had no. you met him before? Had, had, did he know you had just done this event for him? It, it had been months prior, and we met because he was such a big deal, and that went very well. He, he was charming, and he was nice, and, and, and he was charming and nice in this, too, but, like, he wanted to get back to his conversation. with his family. That's so, so mortifying. But I realized my bowels dropped, and I'm just like, I don't have anything to say to him. I made yeah. the mistake of going, like, you're Jason Bourne. You know what I mean? Like, I want to uh, talk to you. Yeah, that Matt is the as good a human... I'm sure everyone's told you this, you've told, but I mean, he is everything you'd hope. I'll just say, really, he's been loyal to me in ways. He is, he's the greatest. I, 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 uh, I cannot tell you the. he's given so many gifts to me. One was when we were on Oceans 13, you know, it was a really big deal to, to, to show up on that set. And, you know, those guys obviously are family. And, uh, I had met George because I was in, a movie we, we had a, two scenes together in a movie but i wasn't friends with george at all and it's just a very intim- and intimidating place to, to go in and i remember dave and i hadn't seen matt in a little while um you know we made rounders together we were on set every day we were inseparable for this period of time he went off and became truly matt damon we all lived our lives uh and then he had done a radio interview jim rome and said, Jim Rome said, when are you going to make what? And, and Matt said, well, the guys writing Oceans 13, I know those guys and I know they're going to nail it. And so if they say they're writing it, I know I'll be making that next, which was just like an incredible thing to do publicly. Yeah. And when we walked on set, uh, it was the day before shooting. And, but people were meeting to do like a, either, not a table read, maybe, oh, hair and makeup test, lighting test. And Matt came walking across this thing and he gave us a hug and he said, come on, let me bring you over to everybody. And he kind of sat us down at the table with that whole crew and was like, these are my guys. They're, they're part of this. And he put us so that we weren't the writers on the outside. We were at the table with everybody. Wow. And it was an amazingly beautiful, it was an incredibly generous gesture it, yeah. um, and really made us a part of the entire thing for the whole run of the show, just in, in that moment. And that's just the kind of thing that he does all the time for, for people. He's a really special person. Well, I, I, I don't think I need to, but I want to stress how in the wrong I was. The story is not he cock, you know, stopped the conversation. Oh, I know. If, if you made him be, if, no, no, if, 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 if you brought out any rudeness in him, it's on you for sure. He was not even rude. He did it in a way that I've done in situations, I'm not Matt Damon, but if you just don't want to have a 45-minute conversation with a stranger, just keep the uh, answers brief and uh, get back to your wife. Get back to no, your wife. Of course, you don't. Well, but we all learn. But it's hard, Pete. It's really hard. And it's a great bit of humility and reminds you of that thing where people think they know you and you're their best friend because of the podcast. Like, again, I've right. been doing my podcast since 2013. And so the people, it's not a huge podcast, but, you know, it's a bunch of Madison square gardens of people listen to it. And yeah. yeah, uh, no, you know, in the world of podcasting, it's small, but it's still like, if I think about it, it's still like a, yes. whatever, but which means that there are a lot of people who know me really, really well, actually yeah. the problem only is I don't know them yet. And so it creates an imbalance. 
that's yeah. very hard to leap over sometimes. You've probably heard me use the word parasocial. It's a parasocial right. relationship, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, but the, the second part of that story, I'm only telling because I'm enjoying this. I saw Ben Affleck at the same party. Yes. And I went up tail between my legs so meek as I was tapping him just to say, I just want to say, I'm from Boston. You changed my life. Uh, I love you. And I just started to back away. And Ben Affleck must have just been in the mood for nude, man. He turned and he was so happy to talk to me. <laughs> he had no idea who I was. And, and, and just gave me like all of what I had been looking for. That's great. Well, I, that I'm not as, I mean, I love Ben too. I'm, we're not, I, I, as like you said, there are people who are your uh, friends. I'm very friendly with Ben. I love Ben. Uh, but Matt and Matt has been, uh, and I did make a movie with, with Ben. And like I say, we're very friendly. I wouldn't say Ben would consider me among his real friends. Um, right. so many likes, but Matt and I are, you know, Matt's really a, a friend. And is Ocean's 13 the nose plays? Oh yeah. Because <laughs> the thing for me, again, you have to understand I'm I'm putting myself in Damon's shoes. So when I watched all of the Oceans movies, I'm like, oh no. Not not really oh no, but I'm like, we're taking our boy, Matty D, and we're putting him with Brad Pitt and George Clooney, and you're like, oh no. Like you're worried. You're like, please don't don't embarrass our boy. And then I'm not just saying this, he steals the movie. He's so fun. I, I, let's not say he steals the movie, but like he more than holds his own. And he's so funny. And I don't know if it's Boston, but like being funny is so important in Boston. And he plays. He's hilarious. The funniest. Nails the funniest. It. Pete, when, 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 uh, do you know where that came from? And where the nose the plays? plays? No. Do you know where the nose, the fake nose comes from? No. Oh, it's a good Hollywood story. Matt and Terry Gilliam wanted Matt to wear that nose in the movie they had been making two years before Ocean's 13. And the studio made them like reshoot the first week because they hated the nose. And it upset Matt and Terry so much because Matt basically had his whole character was in this prosthetic thing. And so when he told us the story of how upset he was, we were like, well, we'll just give you a fucking nose in Ocean's. And so, <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was all of our, that was all of our fuck you to the guys who wouldn't let him wear the nose in the prior movie. Oh, what movie was the nose supposed I, to be? You'll see. It's like, there. what is it? It's a famous remake. It's him and Heath Ledger, I think, right? Um, just look, oh. if, some, like, if someone looks it up, like I, I, they can text I don't you. know if Katie's on. She can look it up if she's, if if Katie's she's on. on. But anyway, yeah, it, that's, a, that's where the nose that's where the nose came from. And then we called it the Brody because Adrian was mean to us once at a party. So we called it the Brody. You know, I like him, but he was sort of mean one day. So we called it the Brody. And you know, I didn't even get that. Really? That it was the Brody. No, I didn't. No, of course. That. Well, what, who else is that going to be? I love that. that all, so Tim Ferriss told me that you call your first cup of coffee in the morning. What is it? Oh, the Royale. I just have to say, labeling things and naming things talk about meaning talk about symbols i now call my first it was supposed to be in the brothers grim oh yes right thank you katie um now i now call my first cup of coffee in the morning the royale and i'm telling you brian of all the gifts you've given me i think that might be the best one because i go this is the Royale. It's like when I, when I used to play video games, like Madden, like football games, 
I used to just pretend it was the the Super Bowl just to make it more fun and it made the game better. And now my coffee is better because there's a story to it. I, well, I'll I, send you the official. I only have a few left because I, you know, we did it for charity, but I'll send you the official mug. Oh, really? <laughs> if, you give, if you said, yeah, just email me or text me your address and I'll, I have just a few left. I'll send you one. Um, oh my God. Yeah, yes. Because you know, what, what happened was I, I started, I call it the Royale. And then a friend of mine named Tom Kretschmar was like, you know, you should invite people to post pictures of theirs during this pandemic. And we can, it'll feel like everyone's because sometimes people would do that. And he was like, you should do it in an organized way. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we did it every day. And I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people posting pictures of their morning coffee. And then they, I only did it for like uh, three or four weeks where I did it every day because I felt like all, you know, the other a hundred thousand people who didn't want to see it, who gives a shit, but I did it enough. And then now these people do it without me. They, they hashtag Royale in the morning and they're having coffee together and it's great. Like they're all having coffee together and I'll still like, like their things or comment. I don't need to do it every day. I didn't want to do it every day, but I wanted to say like, you guys have this and have a moment where in this time of isolation, you're having coffee together. And I gave, I, what I did was um, uh, I put these, so then someone else designed a mug for me and, and someone else said, I'll figure out how to sell it for you. And they, they did all of it. And we raised thousands and thousands of dollars for the food bank, where if you got the official mug, um, all the money from it, every dollar went to the food bank. And I was like thrilled to do that. It was great. It feels tied to what we were talking about earlier, which is like eating together. There's something about like, there's a vulnerability to coffee. You know what I mean? There's, I need this black water. I need it. Yeah, because you're different before and after. Yeah. I wanted to make a t-shirt that says, don't talk to me before my coffee. And then in small letters, it says, I don't drink coffee. That's good. I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, but I will send you, um, I'll send you it and just give, uh, give 50 bucks to your local food bank. I will. Absolutely. Just to your own, whatever your food bank is, throw them 50 and I'll match that. it. When that's, you do it, I'll match it. Just tell me and I'll do it to your that's food bank. That's a Berbiglia thing, by the way. He got me into that. He's like, when you perform in a, in a city, you're a part of their economy. So you should give some of your money to their food bank. I love but, that. Food banks, my big, I will say while we're here in this long, like I, I give, I really try to give to food banks. I, I, in fact, not try. I give a lot of money to food banks. And, I, and, and the reason is we don't, so much of us don't, so many of us don't think about food insecurity. And it's really hard to imagine from, it's funny, if you don't have food insecurity, it is really hard to imagine what that's like. Yeah. And this isn't Hollywood liberal guilt. Thing. Like really and truly, if you just stop for a second and imagine not being able to f- know that you could feed your child lunch, dinner, uh, it's, it's food banks. And especially if you find one that's a good one in, in your community, it's, it is a charity you can just feel good about. There's nothing political about it. There's no sides. It's like here, People and the way that they have matching donations from all sorts of organizations, like a hundred dollars, you can't even imagine how many meals that buys. Ten dollars, it, it's really I I I just feel like giving to a food bank. You feel better having done it. It's uh, really important. So uh, that sort of takes us into always. You know, you've listened to the podcast. We talk about the meaning of life, and I'm looking around us up there on the wall, and he said, you know, his guru said feed feed people somebody said to him how do you raise kundalini which is a very fancy hippie way of saying how do you become more awakened 
and he said, feed people. And I, I, I think that's brilliant and a good way into this. Yes. We're, we're looking at how calling a cup of coffee the Royale adds meaning to our lives. What do we make of the pulse of the universe? If you want to depoliticize it, like we did with food banks, you can even despiritualize it by saying, let's not call it God's creation. Let's not use those words. But we are in something like that. We don't have to debate that. We can debate heaven, hell. We can debate God, no God. Sure. But we are a part of a phenomenon of not only being alive, but knowing that we're alive. We're in a system that is regenerative. Uh, things die and, they, and they're reborn. Everything's recycled. There's no new energy. It's expanding. It's infinite. It's a real, keep all the holy books out of it. Being on a, as I always say at this point, being on a space rock floating in infinity, but we don't feel the spin and we don't feel the travel and we can talk about pants. What, if any, frame do you put on for your own comfort, for your own understanding, or for, or for your wonder, for your enjoyment? How do you look at this? Well, I love the way you point out that we're aware of the fact that we're alive. You know, that's that incredible moment in The Right Stuff, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, when the monkey goes around the world and all the test pilots are laughing uh, at the people who are going to be astronauts because they're like, look, a monkey can do it. And, and, uh, and Sam Shepard, his character, who's the greatest test pilot, shuts them all up and says the difference is the monkey doesn't know that he's on the rocket. And these men will know it. Yeah. And that's all the difference in, in the world. you know. Um, and so, yes, the, the, our awareness of our own mortality forces us to think about the question that you're raising. But the older I get, the fewer answers I have, dude. Like, there are a lot of answers I would have had at 30 or 40. The older I get, the more I just try to engage my curiosity and the more I just try to, like, love and grow. And um, I, I, I know I'm an atheist. Uh, I know that I want to find, um, I'm not an atheist in the political sense. I'm not an atheist who wants to tear down everyone's belief system. For me, I find power in finding a morality that doesn't come from an old book. But, um, and, uh, you know, the more you can try to love people the way that you love your biological relatives. Hmm the better chance you have, I think, of having some kind of a happy existence. It's hard. Again, I think it's really important to say, like, you know, I was on a, I, I was on a tennis court outside recently, and some guy came onto the court too early wearing no mask, and I fucking snapped at the guy. And, uh, like, so I shouldn't have snapped at him. I should have been like, dude, put a mask on. But, you know, I had gotten there waited till the people before me. I had my mask on. I walked to my, I'd been like so rigorously careful and respectful of everybody else. Mm. And this dickhead was not respectful. I was like laughing and talking loudly into his phone as he was walking to the thing and he didn't have a mask on and he was close to me. And I was like, put your fucking mask on, dude. Don't be a fucking, and he's like, what? 
And I'm like, don't be a fucking dick. Like, put your fucking mask on. The fucking pandemic. And also, I'm still here. And I have my mask right there. And I'm going to go put it on before I walk off. Because there's the sign that says, wait until it's, you know. And I became Larry David. So, like, I because I don't want to hold myself out. Like, like I'm some fucking perfect, perfect about this stuff. I'm terrible. Like, I have my moments where I suck. But, um. And like, yeah, I was in the right, but who cares? I was totally in the right, but who cares that I was in the right? You can be in the right and handle a situation with way more grace than I handled that situation. Way more grace, right? Like I could have just literally just turned around, walked back to the bench four minutes earlier than my time, put on my mask and then be like, hey, buddy, next time, maybe wear your mask. Like, but I got, I got yanked. I get yanked into it. Um, and so trying to not get to that place, Pete, and like, if I just would have taken a moment to understand maybe that dude, like, and I had all these thoughts afterwards, like driving back, like, well, maybe that guy, literally, maybe that guy just got the worst news of his life. And he was like, oh my God, thank God. I'm going to get to play tennis. I'm going to get to just like exercise and forget about the fact that someone's sick in my life or that my kid is getting a divorce. And like, I had all the thoughts afterwards, right? of framing it in a way where this guy wasn't the jerk. But in the moment, I couldn't do it right. uh, because we're in the pandemic, because I'm, the COVID numbers are going up in the town I'm in. Like, there's a million reasons, right? But to avoid that, to try to look at everybody like there's somebody that you love and to try to have some grace is important, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And something you said in, in your writing advice, Vines, again, a long time ago, but you were like the emotions that you suppress in life get to be channeled into your writing. And I was like, oh my God. So I am humiliated if I snap or, or have a moment. I said to Val, I had the baby in the car and I had to pack up the car and I was driving yeah. from one place to another. And I, I'll have the impulse that you just want to break something and then I'm very proud. I'm so waspy and whatever it is, or New England, I don't know what it is. But I was like, you don't do that. I, I'm not going to break something because that's stupid. And I was so proud of that control or whatever. <laughs> but in my writing, I like writing people that are going to break something or yell. And I, it's just such a beautiful way you use the verb exercise to exorcise yes. these things and to give them um, a beautiful use because they're not a mistake. You know, the great, the spiritual teachers that I know would say, your rage isn't a mistake. You know what I mean? That moment. Uh, it's not a mistake, but, it, but, it, but I. Well, I don't mean, it, it was a mistake. I, I don't mean, I mean, cause. I know it's a learning. No, you learn, yeah. you should learn yeah. from it, but you want to, you know, we all want to. So like, yeah, I, I just want to be better. You know, I would like to not, I would like to have the moment, the moment of thought that I'd have in the car. Now, in my younger days, maybe I would have really gotten chesty with that person and like, really, but like, still, I shouldn't have snapped at him. And that happens so much more rarely now than it did when I was a younger person. I now it would never happen if I weren't in, but again, like, even now, like I was in the right, but I made the situation worse and not better. And I definitely didn't make that guy change his behavior. And what I really like the really advanced move would be to find a way to talk to somebody like that quickly. Like, hey, dude, come on the court. Yes, yeah, sorry, whatever. Hey, you, it freaked me. And there's probably 10 things I could have said that actually would make that dude have a mask next time. Right. Uh, and I chose none of those. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
it's it's trying to find a place for all of the complicated human emotions. It's so easy to find a slot for civility and polity and and grace and beautifulness. And 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 I'm I, the older I get, I'm trying to be like, your story has value to me because I relate to it. And that's and that's what you do when you write a story with all these flawed characters. That's where the juice is, and that's where the beauty can be, even in all this ugliness. I'm not even trying to give you a pass. If I had seen you do that, I would have been so uncomfortable. <laughs> and I always think of uh, the David Foster Wallace essay, uh, or the speech he gave, where he's like, somebody cuts him off in an SUV, and he's like, I've said this a million times, but he's like, for all you know, that person was in a horrible car accident, and their doctor told them they have to drive an SUV, and they're bad at it. But, and this is this is what we're stuck in. You could make a 90-minute movie about that guy that you yelled at that makes him look like a saint, and you could make a 90-minute movie that makes him look like an asshole. No, of course. Of course. Of yeah. course. That's it. That's love. I, I, it's true, man. Um, I, think we, I think I have to wrap up. I feel it, and we got it. We got it, and then some. Are you kidding me? This was incredible. I love it. This was it. amazing. Can I just tell you? I'm sorry. I just know there's a um, – I'm late. I'm going to be late for a Zoom if I don't. But can I tell you? Uh, this has been such an absolute pleasure. You're so smart and so engaged and so curious. Uh, I really uh, love getting to talk to you. So thanks for this, man. I'm so touched. I, I'm sitting here going like, why did I wait so long? Because you've been on my list for so long and finally it happened. I'm so, glad it, I'm so glad that it worked out. And I hope to see you in person when the in-person world uh, yeah. exists again. And I'll text you my address and then you'll have my number and you can yeah, text me your stuff and I'll text me your stuff and I will immediately send you out a mug. All right, and then thanks. keep Birbiglia me. You got to say, keep it crispy though. That's how we end. All right. Keep it crispy. Thank you, Brian. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>